0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're, part of a, a se- we're right well into a series right now uh, about the parables of Jesus Christ. And it's because the parables are oftentimes very difficult to understand there's always this one ironic twist, though, that helps us to figure out what Jesus is really trying to say, and it's always about the gospel. It's always about the heart of God um, and what it means to experience the gospel in our lives. Now, in this passage, probably not the sexiest of parables that we've read of growing up uh, in, in our childhood, but Jesus here is talking about repentance. And he basically says that repentance is the key. Repentance is the process, by, or how we should process everything in our lives. It's the grid, the lens through which uh, everything should pass. And the Bible says that there's no action then that requires more human greatness, nor produces more, uh, uh, more greatness in the life of a person than repentance. What does Jesus say about it? He says three things. He, says, he talks about why we need it. That's going to be our longest portion of the sermon today. And he talks about what it is and then how we grow in it. Why we need it, repentance, what it is, how we grow in it. First, why we need it. Very simple and yet profound. It's the longest part of our sermon today. Jesus mentions two tragedies. <clears throat> the first is an atrocity. The second is somewhat of a natural disaster, I suppose. The first, the the atrocity, verse 1. Everybody knew about what happened here. He mentions about this one episode of Pontius Pilate, who's a Roman colonial governor over Judea, over that region who surprised his political enemies at the time. They were worshiping in a temple. They were offering sacrifices in the temple. And he basically happened upon them, surprised them, and he slaughtered them. And basically their blood that ran out mixed with the blood of the sacrifices that they were making in a temple. Very grisly, very gruesome. In verse 4, he mentions another incident then that everybody talks about or knew about at that time. It, was, it, was, it took place at, the, at a reservoir near Siloam. And at the spot, there's this tower on the wall, and this tower collapsed and killed 18 people. And the question that that the people came to Jesus here in the first several verses of this passage, he says, why did this happen to them? That's basically what they're asking. I mean, were the people who were killed here worse sinners than the people who are still alive? That's the question that they posed to Jesus. very natural question for us to have. When good things happen... When bad things happen in our lives, it's instinctive. It's instinctive for us to immediately begin to compare what we are experiencing versus what other people are experiencing. Natural to us. And Jesus answers this question and he says this. He says, you really think that these people were sinners than, uh, than the others because this happened? Verse 4, he says, do you think they're more guilty than the other people? And the reason why he asks this question is because he's speaking to religious people. He's speaking to the religious. And the religious view goes like this. If you live a good life, if you live a good life, if you're always obedient, if you're obeying God, you will be blessed. God's going to bless you. Similarly, the corollary to this is what? When bad things happen in your life, something must be wrong with you. It must be because of some inherent sin in your life. Very instinctive of the human heart to think this, to believe this. What does it mean? Think about this. When you watch, and I'll tell you, it starts at a very, very young age. When you watch fairy tales, modern-day fairy tales, Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast, modern-day fairy tale. Um, the beauty is always represented a certain way. Usually uh, very fair, usually very sweet, always has the best voice in the, in the, uh, in the show, right? The beast Especially in this movie, the beast is a little bit of an ironic twist because the beast is actually the human being, Gaston, right? He's brutish, he's burlish, he's proud, and he's arrogant, right? And you see that in the features that they paint this character out to be. Now, there's not a single person who ever watches Beauty and the Beast the first time around and says, I want to be Gaston. Everybody, well, every, no, every you know, female, right? Every daughter will look at the... uh, and say, I want to be Belle. I want to be a princess. I want to be the princess. Why? Because it's instinctive, absolutely natural. Nobody watches Beauty and the Beast and says, who's the good guy in this movie? I don't quite get it. There's not a single person because it's natural, absolutely instinctive for us to know. We're brought up with this. We're taught this, that good people are the beautiful ones that, uh, that do not deserve any type of cruelty in their lives. If you are good you don't deserve cruelty in your life. It's instinctive in the human heart to think this way. So that means if my children are turning out right, it must be because I am a smart parent. I am a wise parent. If my career is going well, it must be because I'm hardworking. It must be because I'm savvy and I'm intelligent. If I have a lot of good relationships in my life, oh, it must be because I'm attractive People are naturally attractive to me. It's something natural about the human heart. We want to take credit for everything. We want to take credit for all the good things that are happening in our lives. We want to take credit for everything bad that's happening in our lives. Now, the irreligious, not much different. They don't think much differently. Because whereas the religious, when something bad goes on in our lives, we blame ourselves, the irreligious will blame the universe or God or just brokenness in general. Why? It's the same exact reason. Because I'm a good person. I'm a hardworking person. I deserve a good life. And so if God exists and I'm not living a good life, it's God that must be evil. It's naturally, it's instinctive in the human heart to think this way, to think that we're the ones that are okay. It must be God's fault or the universe, something wrong with the universe, the religious blame themselves, self-pity. The irreligious blame God. And it's all because we believe that if I'm good, if I'm good, I deserve to be blessed. I deserve to have this blessed life. Jesus says, Here what? I tell you no. I tell you no. That unless you repent, you too will perish. Very, very harsh. What he's saying is whether you have a religious view of life or an irreligious view of life, both views are inadequate to explain the horror and the tragedies that are going on in our world. In other words, when bad things happen, what he's saying is don't look around at other people. Don't compare yourself with other people. Repent. Whether you have a tower falling on you or whether you're watching towers fall on people, you need to repent. That's what he says. Now, they're saying these awful things are happening to these people. Jesus says, yes, it's awful. When you see these awful things happen, you need to repent. What does that mean? Because bad things, what he's saying is bad things are happening, to design, they're designed to lead you to repentance. So it's always ripe. It's always time to repent. If you take bad things in, in your life without repenting, it's going it's to lead to a soulful corrosion in our lives. Your, your soul's going to corrode. And ultimately, you, it's, you're going you're to be destroyed. You're going to come undone. But uh, you're going to perish, maybe not through a tower, but some other way. But if good things are happening in your life, Jesus is speaking to, not to the people who've had towers fall on them, right? If good things are happening in your life, it's designed to lead you to repentance. That's what he's saying. So if you take the good things in in our lives without repentance... You're treating God's kindness with contempt. And that's going to lead to a corrosion in the soul, brokenness of the heart, and it's going to corrode all the way until it works its way all the way through like a cancer, and you will be destroyed. In other words, there's a sense in which God does not deal with his people lest we repent. There's nothing that God can offer us lest we Repent the only way that we can deal with our happiness, the only way we can deal with our grief, the only way we can deal with our anger, the only way we can deal with our confusion in life without it killing you, without it corroding and coursing its way through your soul and destroying you inside out, Jesus says repent. It's the key to everything. It's the gateway to everything, to access to God. We need to repent continually. Now, notice, Jesus is not, like I said before, he's not talking to people who suffered in this text. He's not talking to people who had towers falling on them. Right? If right now you're currently or you're, you're re- recently you've gone through a time in which a tower has fallen on you, a terrible thing has happened to you, either relationally or financially or physically, just bad, awful, terrible things happen to you. There are many places in the Bible that speak to that. Many places in the Bible that speak to this gives us comfort and peace. And it's all true. And it's going to give you comfort and hope and encouragement and insight. This is not one of those texts. This is not one of those passages. Because what's intriguing here is Jesus is talking on people where towers haven't fallen on them. People whose lives are doing well, where no towers are falling. They see towers falling, but not on them. And the first thing we learn through this is that when you go through a period of life where your life is going smoothly, it's dangerous territory spiritually. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, when he says you're going to perish, you too will perish, watch out, look out, you have to repent. He's saying there's no greater crisis in your life than when there's no crisis in your life. He's saying there's no greater struggle in your life than when there's no struggle in your life. He's saying there's no greater warning, there's no greater, uh, you know when you see towers falling on other people, there's no greater warning than when a tower is not falling on you. People say, wait a second. I thought that it's when towers actually fall on me, when bad things actually happen to me, when my faith is tested. And it's absolutely true. Plenty of passages, again, that talk about that. Plenty of passages that offer comfort and resilience and hope and encouragement and insight and counsel about that, absolutely. But what's the assumption here? Because he's saying there's no greater test, no greater danger than to have everything going well in our lives. What's the assumption here? That towers should fall only on people who are genocidal murderers. That towers should fall only on people who deserve it. But most people don't deserve it. That's the assumption here. In other words, another way of saying that is this, okay? That God owes most of us a good life. That God God owes God owes most of us good health. Success, safety, Jesus doesn't assume that at all. Jesus doesn't agree that the most philosophical problem of our suffering is why does God allow so much of it? Think about your life. Just take a a brief moment to reflect on our lives. All the lies that we've told. All the unwise choices we've made. That we've never received consequences for. Think about every time you've betrayed somebody in your life. Did you lose that friend in your life? No. The friendship actually starts to heal. Think about all the times that you've turned your back on God. Did he turn his back on you? There's not a single person in this room that's ever received even a tithe, even 1% of the consequences of the stupid, wrong, proud, and selfish things that we've ever done. So the actual problem, the actual philosophical problem is not why does God allow so much in our lives, but rather, why does God allow so little? When you say, you know, why does God allow so much suffering in our lives? I can't believe in a God that allows so much suffering. What you're assuming is that God exists for your good and for your comfort and your glory, when in reality, you exist for his good and his comfort and his glory, in a sense. Jesus never works on that assumption. He assumes that everyone's a sinner. And as a result, everyone has a tower falling on, deserves a tower falling on them. God doesn't owe a comfortable life at all. And people struggle with that. They say, wow, that's really backwards. That's really unprogressive. Listen, it's one thing to scoff at that. It's one thing to ridicule the doctrine of sin. But it's another thing to offer a better explanation for the history of human violence that has existed from the beginning of time. It's, a, it's, another, it's one thing to scoff at the doctrine. It's another thing to say, you know, I have a better, a more viable conclusion, a more viable explanation for the oppression that exists in our world today. Now, communists, they tried. Communists said, oh, it's a class issue. Give the power to the workers. And they did that. And what happened? That class grew, rose to become selfish and brutish and ruthless. Why? Capitalists, they say, well, give the power to the individual. If you give the power to the individual, we're going to see growth of the human experience. And we did that. And what happened as a result? Superior people have become exploiting ex- ex- uh, the, uh, the in- inferior people. The individual has become selfish and exploitative. Why? Because a famous philosopher says, all of life is a power play. All of life is built on violence. Man versus man. The power of the strong. And the result is violence and destruction and sin. And that's why, that's why even in our companies, even in our jobs, we're constantly looking for ways to thwart other people, step all over the people to get ahead. That's why we're doing that. What explanation does Jesus provide? He says it's sin. Some people say, no, the solution is education. Then why was it? that it was educated people who were responsible for the most violent generation in the history of the world. Jesus says it's sin. If you don't believe in the doctrine of sin, you may think, oh, it's about sophistication, to sophisticate people, civilize people. That's the solution. How do you explain the Holocaust? That was contrived by people who crawled at the sounds of Wagner. Some of the most educated, brilliant composers and artists and philosophers existed in that era. How do you account for that? How do you explain that? Jesus says, You do not understand your true condition. You do not understand the true condition. By nature, what is sin? What is sin? It's overthrowing a king because of our radical self reliance. It's overthrowing the will of a king because of our radical selfishness, our radical self centeredness, our radical self reliance. The poem Invictus, which is listed and printed in the front of your bulletins. What is the last line? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Jesus says, if you don't know, if you don't come to grips with the fact that deep in our heart, there's a radical, malignant self-centeredness and selfishness, you're naive. And he says, therefore, in this passage, he says, therefore, what he means by that is I want you to think about this. I want you to put it all together. I want you to synthesize what I'm saying to you. If God created you, we owe him everything. We owe him absolutely everything. He deserves priority in our lives, but we don't give him priority in our lives. We put ourselves, our careers, our children ahead. If God exists, it's audacious for us to say God owes us a good and comfortable life. The opposite is true. Jesus says, you don't understand your true condition. Everyone here deserves to have towers fall on us. Think about this. Picture this. We are on a ball of rock. We are on a ball of rock. It's hurtling through space. You know how fast? 108,000 kilometers per hour. That's how fast this ball of rock is hurtling. It is a wonder that towers aren't falling on us all the time. It is an absolute wonder that God doesn't let things fall on us all the time. It's a wonder why everything doesn't fall on us immediately considering what we owe to the Lord. Picture this. You adopt a son. I'm going to try to bring it down to a a more uh, existential level here, okay? You adopt a son, and you pour into this child. You're just pouring into him, and you're raising him up, and you're clothing him with the best of clothes, and you're giving him the best that you believe he, he should have, and you're just pouring love and resources into him, emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. You want to just raise this child up because you saw where this child came from. And so you just pour into him, and one day he leaves you. He just says, you know what, I'm going to leave you. You're not even my father. I'm going to leave you. You never gave me what I really wanted because I wanted Freedom. Yeah, you gave me a home, and you gave me an education, and you gave me resources. And yeah, I had food on my table and on my, on my plate. Yeah, absolutely. And you were there for me when I needed you know, someone to talk to. And because of the area that I lived in, I had a certain type of friendships. Yes, absolutely. But you owe me a life. And so I'm going to get out. That's what he says. And so the son takes the car, your car, and takes keys, your keys, gets into a car, and he goes away. And he's got his wallet, you know, and he's got his credit cards. But then he runs out of gas, and then the credit card maxes out. He's got no more friends. What does he do? He says, it's my dad's fault. It's your fault. And so, you know, he's reaching around, and, he, and what does he do? He resorts, he resorts to robbery, and he gets thrown in jail. What does he do? He blames you. It's because of you. You put me here. You see what I'm saying? It's a wonder why worse things don't happen to us. There's an absolute need for repentance in our lives. Now, what is it? What is it? The gospel teaches us that, on one hand, we are much more flawed, we are much more lost than our heart dares to believe. And yet, at the same time, we are much more loved, much more cared for, much more protected than our hearts will ever dare to believe. Only if you see the depth of the brokenness in our lives can you really, really appreciate the patience of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God. Can you really appreciate the unbelievable patience and grace of God in our lives every day? But only if you see the infinite grace, the infinite patience of God at the same time will you really be able to see how psychologically, uh, you know, Will you really get the psychological ability to be honest about what's really wrong with you. So it's two sides of the same coin. On one hand, only if you see your brokenness will you able really able to really come to grips with the grace and love and mercy of God, the compassion of God. But at the same time, only when you see the grace and love and mercy of God for you can you really come to grips then and be able to openly admit how broken, what's really wrong with us, how broken we really are, if you can't look at all the stupidity in our lives, what's wrong with us? If you can't see your flaws, if you can't take criticism, if you just fall apart whenever bad things happen to us, because you know it's your pride, it's because you don't have the strength. It's your pride. You don't have the strength to be driven by, the, by knowing the grace of God in our lives. We need to know how to repent. We need to know what it is. Jesus says there's no more important time to repent than when things are going well when you're reaching your goals, when blessings are showering down on you, when things are going really well, when things are going smoothly. Because repentance is primarily, it's, it's not about breaking the rules. A lot of times we think about repentance as, wow, I've broken the rules, I need to start obeying the rules. When you see Jesus calling people here, right, um, what is he, who is he talking to here? He's talking to people who are actually obeying the law. The religious. Some of them are disciples. Some of them are Pharisees. Everyone in that crowd is believing the Bible. Everyone in that crowd says they trust in God. They're all going to worship. They're all praying. They're all tithing. They're all living right. Their lives are actually going very, very well. Jesus is calling on them to repent. See that? He's calling on them to repent. And when you see that, you know that he's trying to show us something. That repentance is not about obedience. At least not Primarily. It's not about the rules primarily. Of course, you know, you do bad things, you lie, you cheat, you steal. You need to repent. Obviously, we need to do that. But that's not the essence of repentance. Because the essence of sin is not about breaking the rules, but rather the essence of sin is replacing, substituting yourself for God. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So in essence, repentance is not about obeying the rules necessarily. You know, broke the rules, I repent, so now i got to follow the rules. It's in good times when we're, first of all, most likely to not obey the rules, to wander off from the Father, to wander away from God. Actually, it's very natural for us. It's in good times when we're most likely to substitute ourselves for God. It's our self-reliance. When things go badly, when towers are falling, Yes, there's a tendency to medicate yourself, drown in your trouble, you know, seek some sort of indulgence, get filled with self-pity, hide away, break the rules maybe even. There are temptations to go along, you know, go Jesse Pinkman on people and Breaking Bad, right? But when things are going well, when things are going well, there's a central core kind of temptation in our lives. Who is Jesus talking to? Who is Jesus rebuking? He's rebuking the self-righteous. It's in good times when we start to shift from our real hope away from God, away from the heart of God. And, And as a result, we make other things our joy, other things our significance, other things our worth. And that's inevitably happening, especially when good things are happening in our lives. That temptation is there all the time. It's subtle, but it's always there. And and the heat gets turned up very, very slowly before you realize you're already in the boil. That's what happens. That's why it's so dangerous. Gospel repentance says this. I'm not living. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. But I'm not living as if it's finished. So I'm trying to earn my way back into the Father. I'm trying to earn my worth. If I can just be significant in the world. There's this cosmic thing that's going on in our lives that says because I'm distant from the Father, I need to earn my way back in. And the way to get back in is I, just, I need to become significant. I need to earn my worth. I need to do it through performance and through my gifts and through my talents. Maybe my looks. I need to find the sense of worth through other people. If I am just attractive in front of other people, then I feel worthy. That cosmic sense of acceptance is there. If I could just, find, if I could just get ahead in my career, then the cosmic sense of acceptance acceptance is there that's what happened these are my proofs that i'm okay and as a result you don't genuinely love other people you don't recognize other people's love for you and how much people are pouring into your life and how much people are praying for you and how much people are there for you and you got this filling of anxiety in your life you're constantly living with anxiety and, and questions about direction in life. And, and you're avoiding loving other people because if you love other people, you know, then, then you feel this sense of guilt you know, or a sense of pressure or this inherent obligation. You don't want to be loved by other people because then you feel this sense of guilt and obligation that if they love you, you have to love them back. And it's tiring and it's fatiguing and it continues this cycle of anxiety in our lives and that starts to corrode your soul and that destroys your soul. And then it destroys your life. Until eventually, physically, everything corrodes away and we perish. Jesus says, repent or you too will perish. So gospel repentance as a result is the fruit that God is actually looking for from every person. that's going to take us right into the parable. We're going to go right into this parable. The meaning of the parable here. What are fig trees? What are the trees that this parable is talking about? What does the tree actually represent? We all know this. Come on, it's us. The trees are us. The fig trees are us. And what are the figs that God is looking for? What's the fruit that he's looking for? He's looking for repentance. Fruit is a very sweet thing. You take it in. All fruit is sweet. Repentance, he's saying, is a sweet thing. That's how you know your life sweetens. So that's what it is. We talked about why we need it because there's this inherent need uh, for us to number one, justify ourselves and also um, we we need significance, we need acceptance, we need worth and what we do is we substitute ourselves particularly when things are going well in our lives, we substitute ourselves for God. There's this inherent selfishness and self-reliance and as a result, we need to repent. Everybody, what is it? It's the fruit that God is looking for. It's the fruit that says, you know what? That's what I've been doing. I've been relying on myself all my life. I'm not living as if it is finished. I'm still trying to finish it. I'm still trying to earn worth and significance when significance and worth are given to me by God through Jesus, his son. Given to me freely. How do you grow in it? Last point. Because if you don't need repentance, at least if you don't think you need it, um, And you have this kind of remorse as a result. You don't think you need it. You just live with remorse in your lives when you do wrong. That's not repentance, right? Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers, says, you have to understand, you have to see, you have to be thrilled by the fact that God is committed to saving you from what you actually deserve. He said, you have to understand you have to see, you have to be thrilled by the fact that God is committed to saving you from what you actually deserve. Verses 6 to 9, we're going right into the parable. This man, he owns a fig tree. And uh, he says, this fig tree, we des- it deserves to be cut down because there's no fruit. And the caretaker, he's so compassionate. The caretaker says, I am committed to getting fruit out of this fig tree. He's just absolutely determined to getting fruit out of this fig tree. So he he wants to avoid having this fig tree from being cut down. So the caretaker goes to this man and he begs him and he says, "Just give me a chance. Just give me a chance. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to irrigate. I'm going to aerate this fig tree. I'm going to fertilize this fig tree because I am determined to getting fruit out of this tree." Now, we said this already. The fig tree is us. What's the fruit? The fruit is a love for God, a return to God, repentance. Who's the caretaker? It's the one that's saying, I know this tree deserves to be cut down, but just give me a chance. I'm going to work at it. I'm going to work it. Who is, this, who is this person? He says, you know, I know. I don't want to give this tree what it deserves. I don't want to give this person what it deserves. I don't want this person to be cut down. I'm going to bring this person into repentance because if this person repents, he's not going to get what he deserves I want to save them from what they deserve. Who is this person? Who is this caretaker? It's Jesus. Now, see, on one hand, if you only say, I'm going to take a very quick uh, step away from this for a second. If on one hand you say, I deserve to be cut down, but you don't see the work of the caretaker to dig around you and nurture you and irrigate you, even through the bad things that are going on in our lives, you don't see the, the work of the caretaker laboring and groaning and sweating for you. If you don't see that, oh, what's going to happen in your life? You know, you're going to, you're going to be, you're not really going to be repentant. You're going to beat yourself up all the time because you see the work. I mean, you see, the, you see, the, uh, you see what you deserve and you don't see the work and you, just see, you don't see the love and the care of the caretaker. On the flip side, if you see the work of the caretaker, and you see the caretaker's working you and active and, and really digging around you and irrigating and providing channels for growth and fertilizing, right? But you don't see um, that you deserve to be cut down. You're going to constantly uh, be negligent and you're going to play God for a fool and you're going to abuse him and you're going to take advantage of the grace that's given. You see that? If you see the nurture without the work, you're going to take advantage of the father. If you see the... Uh, the um, although all the all the, uh, the cost and you see the what you deserve see the work in your lives then you're just going to beat yourself up if you know all the bad news and it's all true without the good news in essence you're not really repenting if you see all the good news it's all true but without the bad news together then you're going to say oh of course god owes me of course he's going to forgive me that's his job his job is to forgive his job is to 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 give me things his job is to be patient you don't see the work and the cost that it took for the Father to bring you back in. That's what's going to melt your heart. You don't see, uh, if you don't see that, you know, re- your repentance is never going to change you. It's never going to transform you. But when you see the person that you love the most is the person that you hurt the most, is the person that's going to labor and groan and sweat to bring you back that's going to melt you. That's going to melt your heart. That's going to draw you into faith. That's going to draw you into love. That's going to draw you into transformation. It's going to completely restore you. When you see that the person that you love the most is the person that you hurt the most, grieve the most, is the person that you betrayed the most, is the person that is still working to bring you back in, that's going to melt you. That's going to melt your heart. How do you know whether or not you've really repented when you see that you're both a wicked sinner on one hand and utterly loved on the other hand, that you deserve to be cut down, but God is working in you to bring, you, bring fruit, to the point where he says, I am not going to rest until fruit comes out. That's what's going to melt you. That's commitment. That's compassion. Look at the compassion of God. Look at the grace of God. Look at the love of God. That there's a spirit that's constantly working in your life. Constantly taking good things in your life, taking bad things in your life, constantly working in your life, residing with power. It's not weak. He's not just giving you advice. He's working with power to bring you into transformation for change. He's committed to that. That's going to melt you. That's repentance. How do you know that you're repenting? And then you're not just beating yourself up. Here's a test. When you repent, after you've repented, do you find that you can take criticism better today than before And at the same time, you have more confidence to take big steps towards transformation, to turn away from the things that you found significance and hope and worth in that's not the Father, that's not God? Do you find yourself growing more in love for Christ, less self-conscious about yourself? Or, on the other hand, do you find that you get more sensitive to criticism? You know, and and you're less confident, you're insecure, you're just broken up, torn up inside when someone criticizes you. You just fall apart, fall to pieces. You find yourself beating yourself up all the time. You look in the mirror and you say, you're such an ugly person. You're ugly in every way, outwardly, inwardly. That's not fruit. Friends, that's not sweet. There's nothing sweet about that. You have friends like that? Are you like that? It's not sweet. It's very bitter. We're going to bring this all together. When good things happen, when bad things come to your life, Jesus says, I need you to repent. You need to repent. And what is repentance? It's to see that you are a wicked sinner and at the same time acknowledge and see and be melted by the incredi- this incredible thing that God has done to bring you back over and over and over again, constantly working and laboring to bring fruit out. That's what it is. And how do you know that? How do you know that God is doing everything that he can to bring repentance out of you? Who's the person talking here? It's Jesus. Jesus is the absolute proof that the religious view, the religious understanding of falling towers is absolutely incorrect. Because Jesus is the best person that ever lived. He obeyed God to perfection, and yet he had the worst life. Towers were falling on him all the time. Jesus is the most wonderful, most beautiful person ever. And yet he received and endured the most pain, the most suffering that anyone has ever experienced. Why? The Bible says, in repentance, towers will never, the ultimate tower will never fall on you because the ultimate tower had fallen on Christ. It's the reason why the best person in life, the best person who ever lived had the worst life. Because the ultimate tower of God's wrath, his eternal justice fell on him. We all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve God's judgment. We get a taste of it today in the brokenness that we experience every day in our lives. That is a taste. And yet the ultimate, we don't ever have to fear. You know, when bad things happen in our lives, we don't ever have to fear that God has abandoned us. You know, you may doubt at times that God has abandoned you. That God doesn't love you, but you would never doubt that God loves his own son. And where did he send his son? He sent his son to die and experience the ultimate tower of his wrath falling on him. So that it would not fall on you. The only tower that can actually destroy you destroyed his own son. So that you could have life. That means these bad, these small towers that fall, the smaller towers in our lives, no matter how big they feel, they're intentional. It's not God's judgment. It's not a result of God's wrath. John chapter 2, Jesus enters into a tower. He enters into a tower, the temple. And he clears the temple, cleans the temple. And the people say, you know, what right? Why did you do that? What right do you have to do that? Why did you bring down this tower? That's what they're asking him. And Jesus says, you bring down this tower. And I will raise it up in three days. I will raise it again in three days. And the text says the temple that he had spoken about was his body. What he's saying, what he's saying in essence is that the ultimate tower is going to fall on me. And, even, and my power is so great that even that won't keep me down. Do you think these smaller towers that fall on you will keep you down? Oh, we need to come back to the Father. We need to see his grace We need to see his compassion. If you want to handle the iniquities and the injustices of life, you have to see that Jesus suffered the ultimate injustice of all time. The most perfect person that ever walked the earth suffered the greatest injustice of all time. And he did it for our sin. The one person who really deserved to have access to God, the one person who really deserved to have God answer his prayers, the one person who deserved for God to never turn his back on him, on the cross said what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am forsaken. God has turned his back on me. The ultimate fury, the tower of God's wrath, has fallen on me, and he suffered it alone. The ultimate tower. So when my towers are falling on me, we can say, this is only a lesser tower. God is not, that is proof that God is not punishing me. If you, really, if you really believe that God is a just God, he will never punish you twice for the same sin. The ultimate all your sins have been paid on the cross, the ultimate tower of God's wrath, fallen on Christ. Why? So that you would be raised up again. That's the gospel. That's good news. When Jesus says it is finished, what do you think he means? He's saying the work is done, the payment has been made. I will never allow my people to suffer again for the sins that they've committed. They have my grace, they have compassion. When good things happen, when bad things happen, we have to process them. When good things happen, what do you say? Instead of being puffed up, we have to say, I don't deserve these good things. This is all God's grace in my life. This is sheer grace. Because next week, I may not experience that grace. Next week, there may be something else, and it's all done as a part of God irrigating and digging and fertilizing me so that I may be led to repentance. God has not turned his back on me. It teaches me one thing, that being known by God, that is the most important thing in the world to know. You know, you don't think, wow, finally, when good things happen, finally, finally, I deserve it, it's about time, I finally made it. That's not a repentant heart. You're not going to have joy that way. That's so short-lived because the next week, something, the rug could be pulled out underneath. And so you're robbing God of his glory. You're robbing God of his character. You're robbing yourself of the real treasure that God intends to have for you, that intends you to have. That's the sweetness. But if you repent, if you say, gosh, I didn't deserve any of these good things. God is even using these things to remind me of my deep need and dependence. These things are going to melt away. But the glory of God, being raised up in Christ, The life that I have in him is so much sweeter, so much deeper, so much more infinite and greater. That's going to compel you into joy. That's sweet. That's fruit. That's what it is. It builds love. It builds trust. It builds honor as you experience these things. Because if you don't do that, then you're going to say, oh, yeah, this is of my work. And then next week, things go wrongly. This is my fault. You see that? It's a cycle of folly. Jesus says, I want to take you out of that folly. If you don't do that in the good things, when the bad things happen, and they will happen, there's going to be no trust or love left in your bank. You're not going to be able to trust. Because the life is about you. It's about your abilities. It's about your looks. It's about your intelligence. It's about your anger. Why? Because I'm supposed to be rich. I'm supposed to get married at a certain time. I'm supposed to have children. That's not sweet. That's incredibly bitter. Why this talk about being sweet? Because that is fruit. That's the fruit. You have to say, Lord, I deserve so much worse than this. I deserve to have the fury of your wrath come crashing down on me like a tower. And yet Jesus stood in my place and took it all the way. One of of my favorite hymns, that we actually never sing in contemporary culture anymore because it's one of those hymns where the, the uh, music is often lost, but the words are incredibly rich. And one of the words, one of the lines says that Jesus sucked out the dregs of God's wrath. You know what dregs are? Dregs are the things that lie at the bottom of your teacup after you've had authentic tea. It's those pieces that are left at the bottom. There's still a little potency left, so you have to keep pouring water until it's all whittled down into Nothing. The hymn says Jesus really sucked out the dregs of God's wrath. That means that the wrath of God poured out on him, and he said more, 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 more. I want it all. I want to suffer it all. I want to take it all. I'm going to suck out every last drop of God's wrath so that you get the sweetness. Do you see that? That's the gospel. To the extent that you trust that, to the extent that that overwhelms you, ah, oh, when good things happen, you will be grounded you will be repentant. You will know how little you deserve and how gracious God is. Friends, do you believe that? Do you trust that? In the parable, the owner says, this thing needs to be cut down. This this tree needs to be cut down. And Jesus says, just give me one more year. Just give me some more time. On one hand, that's a warning. Because the time is finite. You know, and, and... that means that the spirit right now is present and he's calling us to respond. And if, and if you don't respond because you know, you're afraid of what you're gonna lose, God is there. He's digging, he's irrigating, he's creating the channels, he's fertilizing you, he's drawing, he's, he's working, he's laboring, he's sweating. On the cross, He labored, he's sweat, he was working, he's groaning. Here he's laboring and he's sweating and he's working and he's groaning. He's just saying, next year it will bear fruit. It will bear fruit. You know what that means no matter how many times no matter how many promises you've broken no matter how late it is in your life no matter how many times you should have come and you didn't but here you are no matter what your record is no matter where you've been no matter what you've done no matter how dark your past is maybe even your present the fertilizing is happening you know why i know that because you're here it is intentional will you respond will you respond and bear fruit. The only fruit that's required, the only prerequisite that's required is that we turn away from our self reliance and turn to Christ. That's it. That's what it requires. And that's for all of us now. It's offered to you. Will you take it? Will you soak it in? Because what comes out is sweet. Let's pray.